A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, I have Mike Ligori with us. Uh, Mike is a former Marine and uh, now an author and uh, also consults in the business world on purpose and, um, and meaning, bringing those into the, the, you know, into the workplace. Really, really powerful stuff. So, uh, Mike, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And like, like all our guests, you've got a really good story, really interesting story of how you got here. And, and I do find that, that we, we get a lot of really, really good stories, especially those that have been in the Marine Corps. There's, there's a path that, that make you who you are. And our listeners always know we start with the story first. So, you know, I'm going to, I'll ask the question, how did you get to where you are today? How do you become an expert? How do you write the book? But, but to share us the story of your path through the, you know, well, your early years with your family yeah. and through the Marine Corps and to this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my childhood was very interesting from the lens of that. I grew up in two different worlds. And by the time I was nine years old, roughly eight, nine years old, my parents had split. And so uh, when I talk about two worlds, I talk about living with a dad who was very successful as an entrepreneur, uh, ran his own company, had been working for himself for uh, what is now in present day, 50 years. Uh, and then on the flip side of that, uh, had, a, had a mom who, after the divorce, uh, was left with nothing but a house uh, and two kids to raise uh, part-time with my dad. So it was kind of this co-parenting uh, arrangement that was, that was set up after the divorce. And my mom ended up going back to college and it took her quite some time to finish school and worked at that same time. So a single mom going to school, raising two boys who were not uh, the most well-behaved in middle school and in high school. Uh, and then teaming that with a dad who was working all the time, supporting, uh, supporting myself and my brother at the time, um, you know, in a, in a level of extremes almost because he was running his own businesses. It was kind of like he had us and then he had his businesses and then he had to provide. And then at the same time, my mom was doing the same thing, went to school, had to provide. And so my brother and I were almost at a lot of times, uh, left to find ourselves at a very young age and experience and explore the world. And I would probably say uh, most of middle school and high school was, was quite normal for me. Uh, I grew up in a pretty safe area in, um, in the San Francisco Bay area, uh, in a town called San Carlos. And then in 2001, I was a senior in high school and uh, the first couple of weeks back to school, uh, 9-11 happened. And I remember watching the, the Twin Towers the morning of September 11th with my dad and the shock and awe and the grief that was on our faces at that time, uh, watching those events unfold. Something triggered inside of me, though. There was something about that day that I had never experienced emotionally before, um, being that I was... Being that I was a teenager, I'm still trying to find myself and also like sure. feelings and emotions as well. But when you watch something that horrific happen on live TV, uh, there was something that pulled at me and it was a, it was a call to service. It was a call to something much greater than myself. 
And so instead of going to the path of college, what most tradition, traditionally most high school seniors do, they go to the junior college route or the four year path. I ended up deciding going to the military and I remember looking at the army and looking at the Navy and none of them was, was really appealing uh, to me mostly because it just didn't feel like I was, I was connecting something that was, you know, for lack of a better word, like truly awesome. Yeah. And no knock on the army or the Navy, of course, but you know, it was just something didn't pull towards me and uh, the Marines did. There was just something about being part of something uh, being part of the unit, the teamwork and the atmosphere and the focus, and most importantly, the role that the Marines play in the United States military. And so I went and, uh, I ended up walking to the, walking to the recruiter office and wanted to sign up right then and there, right around probably the, within a week of nine 11, they said, well, you have to wait until you're 18. Uh, so you can't sign up yet. Um, but I only had to wait two more months and I was born on veterans day too. So, you know, go figure, go figure, uh, you know, you could say destiny, you can say, you know, predeterminism or free will, whatever you yeah. subscribe to in theory. Uh, that was the day I decided to join. So, um, I ended up doing four years in the Marine Corps. Uh, I ended up doing two tours in Iraq at that time as well. And, uh, those combat tours had a really profound effect in me, uh, from a personality standpoint, from a life standpoint, it also taught me, um, so much about relationships, personal relationships, communication, um, and about purpose and meaning, which I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit about on the show today. But, um, from that point on, after I did my four years in the Marine Corps, that's when I started getting into this transition home and, really trying to find and identify who I was after the war. And I think a lot of people, when they're in this space of wearing a uniform or they're part of a unit or they're part of a team um, and they have, you know, they wear the name tapes, you have your last name and then you have the branch of service on the side. And uh, those of you who are part of the military or at one point in time, or you currently are, you have family members, something very prideful about wearing something like that. Sure. And when you don't get, when you don't get to wear that anymore, that's where really a lot of people struggle and especially myself, the transition home, not wearing a uniform of that type, not wearing something that uh, represented my country. I was, I was a civilian now I was back in junior college and, and that's where I think really not so much the Marine Corps, um, the journey of the Marine Corps shaped me. It was the coming home afterwards. I really embarked on what has now been a, very, very long journey for myself, almost the last 14 years, um, to present day where I'm at. So, um, the, the, the book that you wrote, uh, share the title again, if you, if you don't mind. Yeah, it's the, the road ahead and miles behind a story of healing and redemption between father and son. Yeah. So, you know, in, in that story, you talk about a tumultuous, uh, you know, relationship with your father, um, that started early on. Did it, did it start when you were a kid? I mean, was it just because, you know, you weren't as connected with him? Um, how did he feel about you going into the core and how did he, you know, what was your relationship like with him and your mom, I guess, coming back in support? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the theme of, I guess, you know, if we, we go back into the relationship piece, the theme was, is that, you know, my dad was very ambitious. He was very driven. Uh, he was a man who was, had his own mission. You know, he had his own company, he had a, he had a customers he was serving. And 
for a man like himself after the divorce to be able to have to reestablish himself again, because, you know, I've never been through divorce and I, and I hope to not go through it, but anybody that has been through divorce, the, you could imagine the, the heartbreak and the starting over again, that happens when you ended a relationship of that magnitude. And I think it was very hard for both of my parents, but the impact that it has on kids especially myself in my own experience. I'm speaking only from my own experience, watching my dad and my mom become preoccupied with building their lives back up again, separate and learning at that time as a nine, 10, 11, 12 year old boy, um, seeking attention from, you know, dad coming to baseball games and still getting used to this, this arrangement and living my life in the, through a duffel bag, you know, where it was like a couple of days a week, I'd be over at dad's and a couple of days a week, I'd be over at mom's. And I was just constantly living through this, this bag situation <laughs> that I had as a kid. Yeah. Um, but you know, with my dad, there's, you know, with my dad I was always seeking his attention and it was always seeking, trying to get his approval. And because I always felt like I was competing for it through the lens of the entrepreneurial route, which is, you know, dad's working all the time. And as a young kid, you don't understand that dad has to go work to provide for you. So you can go to school and you can eat and you can go play youth sports or recreational sports. Um, as a kid, all you want is your dad, uh-huh. you know, as a grown adult, you kind of understand like, Hey, there's priorities and responsibilities that I have to embark on to be able to give life to kids, um, to provide a life for kids and for yourself. So I think for me, there was a lot of friction with that, not understanding and knowing at the time that, you know, I was competing. I was looking at it as like, I have to be competing with my dad's work for attention and love, whereas opposed to, uh, recognizing now that my dad was just doing the best he could with what he had at the time that he had it. And that was, he had to work and provide for us. Um, my mom on the other hand was very loving and was very involved and, um, you know, worked really hard. And I think in a lot of ways, my mom, expended an an incredible amount of energy trying to give attention that I was seeking from my dad. And that is, and this is not to say my dad wasn't trying. My dad showed love and affection in his own way. And it took me on that road trip and to realize how he was giving love and attention. But for my mom, there was a, an incredible amount of effort and energy that she felt like she had to do uh, when it came to raising myself and my brother, um, I guess you could say it was maybe an absence of feeling like, well, if my sons are not getting the attention and love that they feel like they deserve. And again, at that time, it's all perception still is, um, you know, I think there was an overcompensation of that as well to make up for the void. So I always felt incredibly loved by my mom um, to a point where it felt like it was a lot you know, and then mom, in some ways, there was a controlling aspect, like you're not doing your homework, you gotta stay grounded. And with dad, it kind of felt like it was, uh, kind of felt like it was more of a party. Yeah. Yeah. I think that can happen. So were they supportive of you going in the Marines or, or what did they want you to go another route? Uh, my mom was, uh, very distraught. She was, you know, I remember her distinctly saying, you're going to go to the war and you know, you might die over there. And at 18 years old, you're, you have this kind of confliction of, yeah, that could happen, but I'm 18 and I'm invincible. So don't worry about it. I'm going to be in the Marines. It's totally fine with dad. Um, there's a few times in my life that I remember my dad being incredibly proud of me. And that was one of them. 
and he was blown away by by me even just wanting to sign up for it. There was no fighting. There was no um, competing. There was no resistance. I had done this on my own. It was my choice for that. And to watch his face go, my son made this decision on his own to be part of the U.S. military um, and to join the Marines was uh, was a moment that I remember on his face how how proud he was of me and him expressing that verbally to me as well. Had he been in the military himself? No, he didn't. He um, did not get a chance to go um, due to some, I think it was like some sinus problems that he had because he grew up during the Vietnam era where everybody was getting drafted. So, uh, you know, I always sometimes think about like what would have happened if my dad went to Vietnam? Like what would my life have been like? Would I even be here? You know, you never know. Well, you know, I, I've got I've got friends who are Vietnam veterans, and um, you talk about PTSD. I mean, I've, yeah. I've I've seen some really some really really tough things. But so anyway, so you joined at eighteen, you go in for four years. So you're coming out. You're twenty two years old, um, maybe close to your your you know maybe close to your birthday if 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 they release yeah. on, on the date four years, roughly. And here you are. You find yourself back back at home, um, no uniform, no job. I mean, you come back, you don't, it's not like you have a job, then what? So, so what, what happened in that next year or so? You know, I, I think the transition out of the military, it, it, it felt glorious because here I was as a 23 year old kid going back to college and then, you know, everybody talks about how awesome college is. So I'm thinking like, man, I, you know, I worked hard and I played hard in the Marines and I went to war twice and, Uh, Coming home with those experiences at such a young age, um, with this feeling of how much I had accomplished already before the age of 25, I was like, I had already gone to combat twice. And, you know, I've felt like I was I was ready and prepared to be incredibly successful in the real world. So that first year of college felt great. I started making friends and I had never had a problem really establishing relationships and connections with people. But what I ended up finding out at that time was, is that as this transition was happening, um, the world event that was also happening at that time, this was around the 2007-2008 period of the Bush administration where uh, they decided to do a troop search, Mm -hmm. deploying more troops back to Iraq. Well, I was one of the lucky ones that got a letter in the mail and my dad opened the letter and he had said that they had requested me to go get pre-screened to go back for a third tour to Iraq. And that I'll never forget that moment for the rest of my life because that moment that my dad read it to me and how coincidental now I'm even thinking about that now with the book and also my dad reading that story uh, or reading that letter to me over the phone, uh, that event in itself had triggered an emotional breakdown for me a mental breakdown in the middle of my college campus in front of a bunch of kids. Here I was having an an attack, an anxiety attack, full of panic, um, sweating profusely, got in my car as fast as I could and just drove home, uh, drove home to my mom's house where I was living at the time. And I remember sitting in my house for, I mean, for hours, just would not leave. And my mom came home and I said, I'm not going back to school. And I'm not leaving and I'm not doing, I, I, I can't go anywhere. I have to, I have to stay here. I have to stay put. I can't go back to Iraq or I'm going to die. Wow. 
Wow, what a what a powerful moment. Um, we're we're already up on our first break, so we have to step away for a couple of minutes. When we come back, I want to kind of continue this story and continue on your journey. So stay tuned, everyone. We'll be back in just a moment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Mike Ligori. So, Mike, before we went to the break, you were, you really, you, you, had, you were talking about this, this letter that, um, that triggered you, that, that, yeah. that puts you kind of in this breakdown state. So, here you are, you're at your mom's house, you're... You're frozen. I don't know how else to describe it. You know, you said you can't go back to school and you certainly can't go back to Iraq. So then what? What happened next? I remember the feelings of potential death just overcoming me. Watching my mom walk through the door, trembling with fear and, you know, communicating to her that, you know, mom, they they want me to go back. I can't go back. If I go back, I, th- I think I'm not going to come home again because there were close encounters that I had in those, that first and second tour where you almost start thinking about, you know, when's my luck going to run out? Uh-huh. And I remember telling my mom and the first thing she said to me was, I don't care what we have to do, but you can't go back. I've never seen you like this before. And, you know, in the Marines, you're taught a lot to embrace your death. 
your entire the, the end because that was what you signed up for. You know, there was there was honor there was honor in, in dying for a cause. But at this point, when you make it home from two tours of duty, prepared to die, and you do not die, you do not have plans for life afterwards, especially in a time of war. Mm-hmm. At 20 years old, I did not have, well, this is the next five to 10 years of my life. I didn't even think that far. I was just trying to get through the first seven months when I was there in 2004, 2005. And then I was trying to get through the next eight months when I went back three months later. So again, sitting in the, in the confines of my home with my mom asking me, well, how do you feel right now? What's going on with you? And here I am still sweating profusely, the fears of thoughts and and anxiety and depression being kind of combined into one and mixed with this fear of not coming home and not existing anymore. Um, It was, it was so overpowering to me. And I remember the next 30 days in that process, uh, I didn't go back to school. I ended up staying at my house. Um, you know, I'm self-diagnosing at the time, but I believe I had a a case of agoraphobia, which is the fear of being out in public. Mm -hmm. And it was very frightening for me to leave my house. It really was never had had that problem in my life. And it just overcame me. I decided to go to, to do, um, during that frame. I decided that I needed to go talk to somebody. And so I went to, uh, the VA hospital. And as I went to the VA hospital, I told them that I just didn't feel right, that something had happened with me mentally. Um, I just didn't feel like myself. And they said, well, did you serve in the war? And I said, I did two tours in Iraq. And they remember them sitting me down in the ER. And at that time frame, probably after sitting in the ER, about 10, 15 minutes later, these two big security guards came in and escorted me to this room on the fifth floor of this other building that was on the side of campus. First of all, I think to myself, they're going to lock me away. Mm-hmm. They're going to put me in, in, in a, in an institution, a locked, a locked floor. And I was like, I did nothing wrong. And I remember feeling this like guilt and shame and responsibility that I had done something wrong. Yeah. Well, in fact, what they were escorting me to was a room, um, is a, was a waiting room. And a bunch of physicians came in, resident physicians, and they started asking me questions and they were incredibly nice. And they said, you know, have you been having panic attacks and night terrors? And, you know, have you been having anxious thoughts? And I was like, wow, these guys are in my head. They know exactly what's going on. I had had the same nightmare for during that time frame for like three times a week over the course of those 30 days. And it was the same dream over and over again. So these people know me and I said yes to everything. And then they said, okay, well, we're going to step outside for a second and we're going to come back. Remember, this is during the 2007, 2008 time. We didn't have a lot of research on PTSD. Right. And they came back in a couple minutes later and they said, Mr. Liguori, do you, um, do you know what PTSD is? And I go, I have, I've never heard of that before. What is that? Is it like a disease? Did I catch something like a virus? Like, yeah. what is it? And they said, it's called post-traumatic stress disorder. And we think you have it. And I said, well, how bad is it? You know, you start asking questions and, you know, anybody that's been diagnosed with any sort of uh, disease, whether it's been a cold or a flu or something more horrific, you start asking questions. Well, how bad is it? I'm going to make it out. The first thing that I asked them was, well, how bad was it? And they said to me, uh, by the looks of it, it's pretty bad. It's, we would say it's moderate to severe. And I said, well, can I cure it? Is it, can I make it go away? And they said, you're going to have it for the rest of your life. 
sitting at that, that I'm going to have this thing that I didn't know about, was never told about, didn't even know it was a thing, started finding out that I was going to have this thing for the rest of my life. Yeah. I had heard it in one form or another because it had been called shell shock. For some of you who remember Gulf War syndrome was another term for it. Here I was 23, 24 years old, was enjoying my transition home from college. And one letter that I got in the mail triggered a lifelong journey of battling anxiety, um, depression, thoughts, you know, overthinking, hypervigilance, night terrors, sweats. These are stuff that today at times still impact me. Not as bad as it used to be. You still have dreams. You still have those things that pop up out of nowhere. I I would say it's residual from time to time. It's residual. I mean, because how can one ever forget something of that magnitude? How can everyone something for you? You don't forget stuff like that, but that doesn't mean it impacts you. It just means that your brain has experienced something for such a long period of time that was so intense. I was so horrific on a ton of things. And more importantly, it was just full of memories that you had when you were a young kid. Mm-hmm. Does it impact me and my ability to function every single day? Absolutely not. But that doesn't mean that I don't associate at some point in time, a memory popping up and experiencing that. That doesn't mean I don't think about, you know, the, the amount of miles that I drove on the roads in Iraq, where there was landmines, scattered all about. And I didn't know if I was going to run over one or not. That doesn't mean I don't think about those things. It, what it just means is, is that I'm not there anymore. My head's not over there anymore. I'm, I know where I'm at right now. I know where I'm physically present. So the story of PTSD, just to sum this up, the story of PTSD and that type of, and that type of, you know, narrative that had happened had set me on this course a lot of the work that i do now but most importantly was teaching myself about what it truly means to live in the past and letting go and moving forward and uh becoming the best version of yourself uh through that journey and so 2008 was a was a blessing in disguise i didn't end up going back to iraq uh, and I ended up realizing that when I didn't go back to Iraq, it was the end of my military service and it was the beginning of my life afterwards. It's, it's such a, it's such a powerful story. So here you are now, you've got this diagnosis of something you'd never heard before, but you, you kind of, you know, as you mentioned with shell shock, yeah. um, it's a real thing. You're going through this. Um, you kind of get off the hook. Did you go back to college then at that point and finish out college? or and, and so what were you studying and what path did that put you on? Yeah, so at that time, I went back to school. And the people that I was seeing for treatment had said, you know, don't put so much pressure on yourself to have to power through every single day. Mm-hmm. Just know that there are going to be some really intense sessions that we're going to go through where you're going to have to talk about what you went through. And, you know, mental health is such a serious thing. It is, it is a huge crisis, especially in our world today. And being able to have a supporting group of people tell you that it's okay to experience what you did and to go through those things and that not to feel like you have to power through every single day there are days where it's okay for you to take a mental health day, take a timeout, but 
the thing is, is to always keep moving forward. And that's how I approached the rest of my years of school. Um, you know, I'd go to class when I could. And if I didn't feel like being in class, I would just, you know, at first I would try to power through it and tough it out. The Marine in me was like, ah, oh, you'll be fine. Like, don't worry about it. And, uh, I remember there were days where I had to let my professors know, Hey, I can't be in class right now. Yeah. And I wasn't really truly vocal about, Hey, I have PTSD. Let me out of class. Cause I think at that time people still misunderstood it, but it was more about being, being kind to myself and allowing myself to say, Hey, this is a process. You're growing in a different way. You're, you're learning something new about yourself. You're dealing with something that you didn't know was going to be a real thing at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up doing four years, graduated with a uh, business management degree and, uh, it was, it was really great because I was like, I'm going to go get this job and I'm going to make a ton of money. And for those of you who don't know about the military, we do not get paid very well, uh, but your basic needs are met. And so I had gotten this business management degree, was living in Silicon Valley where I was born and raised thinking I'm going to get a job at a nice tech company and life's going to be great because I'm just going to make a ton of money. I actually decided at that time that there was a story that needed to be told about PTSD, about my war trauma, about getting out there and really telling the story about veterans. And I decided to do freelance writing instead and ended up penning a, my first book, which was called The Sandbox. And that was about my entire journey of coming home, about the war and what it was like to experience firsthand um, camaraderie, relationships, the toll of the war coming home. And in depth, I tell more in detail uh, than what I'm speaking now about uh, my journey home. But that was my that was my next mission after graduating college was being a veterans advocate, was sharing with people the transition process for military veterans who had gone to war and not gone to war. Mm -hmm. There was a transition process um, and really making sure that veterans had an advocate. They had somebody fighting for them. They had somebody who you know, who knew exactly what the, what it was like to come home. And I felt I was an incredibly good model for that just because I had struggled so much during that time frame. And after four years of college and graduating and having this book, 2011, 2012 timeframe, uh, I thought it was a perfect time for me to be able to say, you know what, it's time for me to serve. And this is my next mission and get back and making sure that veterans who were going to get out for decades to come, we're going to be impacted by any sort of advocacy work that I, that I would have done in that current day. Got it. So you didn't, you know, run obviously the, the corporate path, but that, that allowed you to start building what you do today, which is your yes. consulting practice. Yes. Yes. And it, and you know, I, I bounced in and out of tech. I bounced in and out of some big companies and some startups and was mostly in the startup world for quite some time. And one of the things that I, I found uh, most fascinating about companies is that the ones that were incredibly successful in comparison to the ones that weren't, and this is just all from my experience, is they had a clearly defined mission and purpose. They knew exactly who they were serving, what the problems were, the people that they were serving, and they also knew how to solve it. And even if they didn't have the bulletproof solution, mm -hmm. they believed their solution was the bulletproof solution. It was almost like the conviction. If you ever watch those infomercials with the guy who's who, um, the two guys that I remember the most from the infomercial world was the guy that did the sham wow. Yeah. Remember the sham wow? Yeah. That guy 
that guy told you that his product was like could clean up any mess. You could not, there was not a paper towel in the world that could compete with the shamrock. And then the guy who does the flex seal stuff. Yeah. It was the level of conviction that they had uh, to be able to say, if you have a crack anywhere, you just spray this thing on sealed done. You don't even have to worry about it. And that's what I found in my work is that the best companies, uh, the startups, the leaders were all so convicted that their solution was going to solve the problem of the person that they were serving. Yeah, it's, it's really, it is in my work, it's absolutely key, right? I've mm-hmm. seen the same thing. The, the companies that have that conviction that are driven by their core values that have really worked that aspect. So it's, 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 it's really not so much about the product. The product is what it is, but right. it's it's that belief in people who are aligned and able to work with one another that, that drive a culture of success. It just really, really snowballs on itself. Yeah, and and you know, and, and I'm so glad you said that too because it has to go beyond the product. It has to go beyond that. You have to actually look at how are you making the person's life so much easier, your customer's life, your client's life. Uh, Even in the consulting aspect, I always have to think about how can I make my client's life so much easier than what it is right now? What key decisions could I help them work through today that's going to get them to where they want to go? And a lot of this and a lot of the work, especially with, with entrepreneurs, is is that they also something that I have found that they struggle with the most is not so much the market the go to market strategy or the marketing tactics or how to sell they struggle with being able to integrate their purpose and their meaning into their business model mm. especially if there is a spirituality component into that and what I mean by that is is that people tend to say well work life balance life has to be balanced on the outside and so does work. And what I actually subscribe to is the work-life integration piece. If you're an entrepreneur right now, you have to be able to see that it's actually two halves of a whole. It's They play off each other. If your work life is really great, your life, your personal life will benefit and vice versa. If your personal life is really, really great, your work life will benefit too. You can't sep- think of a separation because if you do, it becomes incredibly tough for you to be able to manage and run something uh, effectively. Yeah, you know, I, I think no truer words have ever been said. It's something I've tried to preach quite a bit. We are one person. We can't live multiple lives. They have to integrate. They have to balance. And when one is out of whack, the other is going to be out of whack. Uh, we are already up on our next break, so we have to step away for a couple minutes. But um, everybody stay tuned. When we come back, we'll just be continue our conversation with Mike Ligori. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. 
It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with Mike Ligori. So, Mike, just before the break, we started to talk about your work around purpose and meaning, you know, and, and it's yes. such an important part. And you mentioned entrepreneurs. And, and one of the comments you made is entrepreneurs in particular really struggle with this kind of how do I integrate purpose and meaning into into my business, right? I mean, how do I do that? Especially if it's something spiritual. Everybody's like afraid to to sometimes put their real feelings out there. And yet it, it's like a paradox in a way, right, that, that what we fear most can be the most powerful thing for our work. Um, how do you help them get beyond that? Yeah. Well, first of all, just, I want to take it a step further too. Spirituality does not imply that you go buy mala beads or you wear a crucifix around your neck, or you're sitting on a pillow every single day, meditating for half the day in order for you to get your work done. That is not what spirituality implies. Spirituality is your belief system. It is what you truly believe in and just being you. And what is your connection to the purity and the good? And whether, you know, whether you believe it has a place in work or not, it is a part of who you are. And so a lot of the work that I do is helping getting entrepreneurs past the actual product and service and focus on the why. It's the culture. It's the mission. It's why do they choose to get up every single day, get out of bed? put their clothes on and go run a business. You know, can you find purpose in being a rubber band distributor? Can you find purpose in owning a meat packaging facility? You totally can. I have clients that start agencies that they know is actually more driven to solve a problem Mm -hmm. in the marketplace. But the mission, if you ask them, is why are you doing this? The mission is actually completely different from the company. It's not to create better content or market brands. It's actually to, you know, feed the homeless, end world hunger. It's uh, provide for my family for future generations to come. It's giving back to, uh, you know, 
underserved communities in a manner where you can bring arts programs back. Everybody's mission is completely different. And so a lot of entrepreneurs don't associate with that. They say, well, I'm going to make the money first and then I can go and be uh, right. philanthropic with my efforts. Yeah, it's 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 incredible. So we we do an exercise. I mean, we, we talk about discovering a company's purpose and we always say, what's your purpose beyond making money? Now, I, I work, maybe I work with bigger companies than you. I didn't ask what size companies yeah. you work with, but, but, you know, we're working with some pretty good size organizations and it's amazing how often when you say, okay, well, why do we exist? Well, we exist to put money to the bottom line of the shareholders. No, that's not why you exist. If you do yeah. it right, that's what'll happen, right? That mm. it's a good way. To, it's a scorecard. It's a good way to measure if you've been successful, but that when, when that becomes the purpose um, that's problematic. I have watched, I have watched great companies who were acquired by venture capital groups who drove for that almighty last penny at the bottom line, put those companies out of business because they lose their purpose, they lose their meaning, they, they, they lose the why they're doing things. And next thing you know, quality su- su- suffers, the customer service suffers, all kinds of things. And they just all of a sudden they're gone. Great companies are gone. I mean, you know, there's lots of good examples. A big one for, for those that will remember was um, uh, Circuit City. Remember Circuit City? Yeah. Probably yeah. a newer kid, big in California. And when they got acquired and they lost their purpose, I mean, that was one of the, they were considered one of the best operations in the country at one point. And now they're gone. Yeah. You know, nobody, people yeah. on this call, I, I know that people are listening to the show have never even heard of them and they don't exist anymore. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, the people that I work with, um, are anybody from Inc 5,000 founders to medium sized businesses, to even the solopreneurs, people yeah. who had been working at corporate jobs for an incredibly long time, were very well paid and decided that they wanted to do something much larger than themselves. Um, you know, to me, it's all about really connecting to this idea that there's freedom and time that lies on the other side of that chance that you're taking. Mm-hmm. And so being able to free them from the constructs of, you know, being an entrepreneur is a grind or it's hard or it's this or it's that or any excuse that they've read, it is a journey and it is challenging, but it doesn't have to be as hard as you're making it out to believe. And something you said about mission and purpose, one of my favorite stories that I ever read was the story of a woman who rode a Southwest flight. And every time she rode the Southwest flight, she always wrote a letter to Southwest. I don't like the uniforms that your attendants are wearing. There's no first class. There's no food. There's no this. Um, The people are noisy. The seats are too tight. Always found something to complain about. Well, one of the letters, (laughs) I want to say, I remember correctly, it was like, maybe months later, one of the letters got to the front desk or got to the desk of the CEO at the time. And as she was complaining about all of these things, the CEO wrote, dear Lisa, we will miss you. Love (laughs) Herb. And so I tell that story because this is a company Southwest. We're all familiar with Southwest, but the CEO of the company knew the mission and the vision and the values of the company so much that he was not going to let one customer deter them from their path. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how often we want to jump on that one little complaint and, and you, and you lose sight of everything. Our, our product is not for everyone and that is okay. Yes. And the money and, and to talk about money, because this is, a, this is a topic that's a, that's a hot button item for a lot of people. 
the money is always a product is a byproduct. Yes. The money is a byproduct of connecting to your mission and to your why. It does not matter what you're selling. It does not matter the need in the marketplace. It does not matter how awesome your brand is. Those are all byproducts. The money comes in when you are completely convicted of your belief to solve somebody's problem from a rubber band to the flex seal, to the ShamWow, to Southwest Airlines, to all the different businesses out there. You have to remember the money will come to you and then it becomes a byproduct when you stay focused on the mission because you don't get distracted, as you were saying. You don't lose sight and you stay on the path and you think about it every single day. What is the next brick I have to lay in the foundation? Most entrepreneurs miss out on this because they forget the mission because they get dangled the VC money or they get this influx of cash because they ran a Labor Day sale. These are all things that people get completely blinded by. And I encourage and implore all of you out there, you have to stay focused. You have to make sure that this is a brick building process. You are building a house. You are not rushing and building you know, a hotel just to get up to piles people in there to just start making money. It has to be a strong foundation and it has to be a brick laying strategy. So, you know, obviously the best place to start is when your company is young. If, you know, if you're a solo uh, entrepreneur or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's small, that's one of the easiest times to kind of work on purpose because, you know, you you have, you sometimes it's a little bit more clear at that point. But companies grow, and and I think you know two things happen. First of all, I think it, I think it, it can become hard to stay focused on your purpose if if you don't become obsessive about it, if you don't keep it obsessively in front of you. And then the other side of the coin, you have the bigger companies that have grown who've either lost their purpose or never really clarified it, and you go and work with them. And this concept of trying to sell them on something that it, that there is something other than the bottom line profit to to measure here that can sometimes be a, a tough sell as well. You know, how do you help them? How do you help them see the power of that? Yeah. Well, first of all, the, the, the first thing that I do, especially with my clients is I take the money off the table and I've gotten some reactions from that. And it's a little unconventional, but I, but I like being unconventional. I go, I'm going to take the money off the table and let's just talk about you as the company and the entrepreneur existing. But that's why I'm in business though. Yeah, of course. A lot of people are in business for the money but I want to take it off the table. You have all the money in the world that you need. Uh You have everything taken care of for you. So I'm taking it off the table because it's not a focus anymore. Why exactly are you in business? What that actually does is it gets them to start thinking quote spiritually about their existence, their purpose and their mission. And it becomes clearly defined for them why they're here. Even if it's not the job, even if it's not the company, there's something much larger. And I, and I had referred to this earlier about some of my clients mission is not so much the product or the service that they're selling to the customer. It is taking out a cause that is affecting millions and millions of people, world hunger, feeding the homeless, um, dedicating arts, you know, dedicating to arts programs and underserved community with that schools are getting budget cuts taken care of from. There is, all sorts of stuff that people truly, truly care about. That to me is a spiritual mission. That to me is something that when we get to the root of that, that becomes so much easier for them to focus on because every decision in the company is actually focused on the mission, less on the money. Then the money gets put back on the table in my conversations where they start going, 
ah, the money is now a fuel source for me to go land on the moon. That's really what it comes down to. So the, having that conversation is very challenging. The other thing that I, I also work with clients as well, and this is mostly um, this is mostly something that works very well with Inc. 5000 founders and people who are working in the early stages, the first one to three years of their business, mm-hmm. is if you want to scale your company and you want to have massive success with your company, you have to massively scale yourself. And what I talk about is is self-improvement and personal growth will be the biggest drivers in your business. The more you work on yourself, the more that you expand your thinking, the more that you expand your thinking, you start looking at problems differently. You start looking for solutions. You're not so caught up in, you know, having the right answer all the time. You're more caught up in getting the answer, which means other people, advisors, building your team, moving the company forward. You're attaching to the mission. Yeah. And most entrepreneurs don't know or they don't get taught about, oh, if I actually work on myself, my business grows. It's very true. Even if it's a reading habit for 20, 30s a day, you've probably heard the saying before, leaders are readers. Mm-hmm. It's very much the same thing. But that is one of the things that I also really emphasize too, is that working on the personal growth aspect. So meaning and purpose comes from working on yourself and discovering and letting go and forgiveness, key components of compassion and caring, but also ambition and drive into becoming a better version of yourself. That actually becomes the driver for you to be the best CEO that you wanna be, to be the guy like Herb who's been running you know, Southwest Airlines all those years. Yeah. Because I guarantee you he's done a ton of work on himself to the point where he could write a customer and say, hey, we'll miss you, love Herb sending lots of love and gratitude, but you don't have to write our airline anymore. That takes a level of growth and and commitment on yourself to be able to stand firm and being able to pen a letter to that woman, a paying customer, especially in today's world where reviews are, you know, are almost everything. Yeah. It's, you know, I wonder, I wonder how many people would be willing to do that today. And and yet it's essential. Herb Kelleher is a great Great example yeah. of, of an entrepreneur gone well. A um, lot of self-awareness and very mission-driven. Yeah. You know, uh, we've only got a couple minutes left, and we didn't sure. really talk about your road trip with your dad. Um, yeah. You know, another transformative uh, moment in your life that has really supported all this kind of purpose concept. And so, you know, long story short, after, you know, COVID hits and you take this long road trip with your dad and you final, finally find yourself... Um, reconciling with each other. I don't even, I did, did he even feel there was a problem or was it all with you? And I'd love to just hear a minute or two of the story there yeah. and how that's contributed to things in your life. Yeah. Well, uh, to give you the quick rundown, the stories about it, 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 the healing and redemption piece comes from my own resistance to accept my father as who he is. And I think most of us struggle with that with our parents, right? We have a, you know, when we're younger, our mom and dad is trying to tell us to not jump on the couch to, you know, eat your vegetables and, you know, you can't go to the high school dance. And then when we get older and as our parents get older, they start letting loose and we go, mom, you're too old to drive. Dad, stop playing pickleball. You can't be riding your bicycle anymore. You're 75, 80 years old. It's kind of this cycle that happens where we try to change our parents after years of them trying to change us. So the story really is, uh, is really about acceptance. And I think for my dad and I, he recognized that we weren't as close as he wanted us to be. And so 
the book in itself really tells the story about how we came to accepting and loving each other. Um, how this trip, you know, in one of the worst times in human history brought us closer than ever. Mm-hmm. And it really gave us a, a common ground to walk on and being able to say, you know, I'm not afraid of ending up like my dad. I'm actually really proud to end up being his son. And that's a big difference. Yeah. And so I won't give away too much of the book, but I encourage everybody to go out and read it. Um, it's a beautiful story. I'm very proud of the results of that book. And more importantly, I'm proud of uh, where my dad and I are today uh, as father and son. Excellent. And uh, the book can be found, I'm sure, on Amazon and other yep, booksellers. Amaz- yeah, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, and, you know, and also on my social media accounts as well, I definitely promote the book and also share a bunch of free content about purpose, meaning, uh, and, and passion and, and work in life. And the title of the book again? Yeah, it's The Road Ahead and Miles Behind, A Story of Healing and Redemption Between Father and Son. Excellent. Excellent. And um, Mike, one last thing before we, we end the show. If people want to find you, connect with you, um, what's the best way for them to find you? Yeah, absolutely. So I post a ton of free content on uh, Instagram. So you can find me there uh, at Mike.Ligori. That's L-I-G-U-O-R-I. Um, I post a ton of free content and always uh, be able to just share stories, theories, ideas about entrepreneurship, work, life, and uh, impact, purpose, and meaning. Excellent. Mike, it's been a pleasure having you with us today. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure was all mine. I hope to be back sometime. Absolutely. We'd love to, to talk more on these things. So that wraps our show for this week. We've got more great guests coming up in upcoming weeks, so stay tuned for those, and thank you for listening. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.